Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. What's up, everyone? How we all doing today? Welcome into another episode of Equal Play. I'm your host, Annie Costable, and I am just thrilled. I am tickled to bring you this special episode of Equal Play in partnership with Chicago Baseball and Education Academy. Our guest today is Chicago Cubs minor league hitting coach, owner of Fold and Fast Pitch, and former pro with the Chicago Bandits, Rachel Folden. You all know how this works. That conversation is coming up. But first, I have to hit you with the headlines. The U.S. women's national team six to nothing win over Argentina Wednesday night clinched the team's second consecutive She Believes Cup title. Argentina was significantly outmatched and the U.S. put the game away in the first half, scoring four goals in a 25-minute span. Megan Rapino scored twice and Carly Lloyd and Christy Mewis added to that first half score. Kristen Press and Alex Morgan tallied two goals in the second half, bringing us to six to nothing. It was an expected win, but a valuable opportunity nonetheless for Vlako Andonovsky to continue assessing his team as he works to name that 18-player roster who will represent the U.S. women's national team at this summer's rescheduled Tokyo Olympics. The NWSL announced the list of allocated players from the United States and Canada for the upcoming 2021 season, and there are six players from the Red Stars listed. Yes, you heard me correctly, six. Not one, not two, not three, but six allocated players. They are as follows. Tierna Davidson, Julie Ertz, Casey Kruger, Alyssa Nair, Mallory Pugh, and Bianca St. George. St. George is a newly allocated player, and Morgan Gautreau is no longer allocated by the U.S. Soccer Federation. The Red Stars will have their entire roster together for the first time during preseason training beginning next week, and you can read more about preseason and Coach Rory Dames' expectations for the 2021 season at thesuntimes.com slash soccer. All right, those are my two headlines for you this week. Please pick up a copy of the Chicago Sun-Times today, tomorrow, and every day. We appreciate you so much and appreciate your readership. Now, without wasting any more of your time, here's my conversation with Coach Rachel Folden. For those who don't know, I'm Annie Costable, multimedia journalist for the Chicago Sun-Times and host of this year podcast, Equal Play. And I'm thrilled to be bringing you this very special episode in partnership with Chicago Baseball and Educational Academies 
Winter Meetings Women in Baseball series. Wow, we got a shout out from the pup. Love it. Um, but CBEA is a nonprofit founded by former MLB All-Star and Chicagoland native Curtis Granderson, and it's dedicated to providing baseball accessibility to inner city children and youth in Chicago. So Curtis has and will continue to be doing great work here in Chicago. And our guest this week is former pro with the Chicago Bandits, college softball coach at Holy Names University in Valparaiso, and current Cubs minor league hitting coach, pioneer industry leader, Rachel Folden. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Man, that was a huge mouthful. And obviously people aren't tuning in right now to hear me talk. So let's get to some questions. You made history as the first woman coach hired by the Cubs ahead of the 2020 season, but you obviously had to work and build towards that position. It didn't just get handed to you. So let's start from the beginning. When did you develop a passion for this game, both baseball and softball? It started pretty young. We have kind of a baseball family. My dad's a big baseball fan. We grew up Dodger fans and my brother played baseball, my older brother. And so I played baseball with myself and my uh, brother, who's the same age as me. He's technically my stepbrother. And so we just played like literally growing up. I played baseball until I was about 12. And at that point, you know, basketball was my best sport. And uh, so I stopped playing baseball. And then my basketball coach asked me to play softball. So that's how I got involved in softball. And so I just played until I couldn't play anymore. You know, I read a few stories about you and that transition from baseball to softball was not one that you were super excited about at first. So can you describe making that transition and that you know, energy that is put on women, young women of you have to, at some point transition from baseball to softball. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I hated softball. I thought it was the dumbest sport. Um, in my (laughs) mind, I thought of slow pitch softball. Like I didn't even, I had no one in my family, no friends, nothing that played fast pitch whatsoever. So I just thought it was dumb. I played, uh, softball on my middle school team and it was slow pitch. And so that was like my only knowledge of it. And I was just like, nah, it's boring. Like baseball is better. And, but it got old being like every single time we'd roll up to a field, it would be like, oh, that team has a girl on it. Oh, you know, and it was, I was never praised for my ability or anything like that. It was always just, wow, she throws really hard for a girl or, you know, it just, it just got old. And, and I loved the game, but at that point I, and I was terrible at it, by the way, I was awful. Um, I, I think my last season of uh, little league baseball, I didn't get a single hit. I love to tell my, my 12 and 13 year olds that story. Cause it's the truth. I went over for the season it was awful. And I had really like thrived on the basketball court. So I just kept playing basketball. Um, and even when my coach asked me, I told him, no, I did not want to play on his softball team. I did not like, I had no desire to play softball. My softball stupid. And all it took was, he goes, yeah, you're probably not very good at it anyway. And that was all I needed to hear. And then I was like, okay, like I'll come play. Let's see what this is all about. And all of a sudden I fell in love with it because it was like, wow, I'm surrounded by women. Like everybody looks like me and we're all going through the same things. And it, it wasn't like this big deal that I could do this with the little asterisk next to it that said for a girl, I was just, I belonged. And so I fell in love with the sport. I laughed out loud reading that, that part of the story when your coach hit you with the, oh, don't worry about it. You're probably not that good anyway. And it's like the competitor and you was like, screw that. Let me, let me show you what's up. 
He knew um, what he was doing too. He knew yeah, what he was doing. Oh, oh, for sure. 100%. Yeah. But, you know, that brings up such an interesting point um, in that you felt at home playing softball. It wasn't about, oh, she's good for a girl. You you were playing on a team where where it was only about your performance. And I wonder for you, you know, how important it is for the future of women in baseball that we provide those opportunities for women to play baseball on teams filled with women instead of if you're a young woman who has the desire to play baseball, you are going to have to do it on a young man's team. It's similar to football in that regard. So I wonder what your perspective is on that and how important it is, again, for the growth of, of the sport and for women in the sport to invest in teams and and that are made up of women. Yeah, I, had, I was on another podcast actually with uh, um, the International Women's Baseball Center and we, we kind of touched on this question a little bit. I would love to see women's baseball make a comeback. You know, I don't think it necessarily has to be men play baseball, women play softball. Mm. Um, this was actually one of the, you know, things that I wrote my, my thesis on when I was a senior in college, like to, you know, to graduate because I was a history major was like, why did we hand baseball to men and we gave say, softball to women? And I think, you know, there's a play, there are two different sports. So there's a place for women in baseball, just like there's a place for men in softball. There's men's fast pitch that not a lot of people know about. I mean, we know a lot about it in the Chicagoland area, mm. but there's not, you know, it's not a huge nationwide presence. It's, it's a sport that both genders can play. And, you know, I think like in, in this case, you know, hires like myself and Rachel Valkovec and Alyssa Nakin and all of these, you know, women that have gotten hired, it's just increases the representation that like, you know, Hey, there's someone out there that's doing baseball. And so I think I can go play baseball too, but I wish there were more opportunities for women to just thrive and play on a, on a woman's sport on a women's baseball team. I would have loved that. If you would have given me that opportunity, I never would have switched to softball. Definitely. And I think that's the most important takeaway is that we need to provide opportunities for young women to see it and then be it. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think that's a huge issue with this lack of representation is it's taking dreams out of young women's heads. Transitioning as a woman in baseball and softball, when did this dream to coach in the majors manifest? When did you first start to think about this as a future career possibility? So I had been coaching, you know, just like I coached in college, hated coaching in college, by the way, loved coaching, hated recruiting, hated all the, you know, the red tape that you got to go through and the recruiting, like I just hated it. So mm -hmm. I just decided I wanted to coach. So I opened up my own business, started giving lessons, right. that grew. And I've always been pretty darn curious. Like I've never been one of those players that was just like, well, I was really good. So just do what I do. Um, I coached like that for a little while. I wish I didn't, but uh, you know, I, I've learned some things since then, hopefully. And, you know, <laughs> I, I started to reach out to coaches that were doing things better than me. And I, you know, that's like, if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing. And so it led me to uh, getting connected with, um, Travis Kerber and Justin Stone, who run a company called Elite Baseball in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And when we met, they sat down and I've sat down with numerous, you know, like batting cages in the area, facilities in the area. 
who all want to bring me in and they just want my rental. And so they, you know, that that's it. They just wanted, Hey, I want you to use our cage. We we're going to charge you this and you can do whatever you want. Nobody was really providing me with any resources to get better. Mm-hmm. And so when I was approached by them, it was initially to expand their softball reach into Northwest Indiana, which I was all about because I loved what they were doing. They were very technology forward. They were very, you know, intuitive, creative. And I just loved them. Like I hung out with them and I loved them. And I said, yeah, I want to do this. And, but I want to be involved on the baseball side because they were having all of this tech, all of these, you know, they were consulting at this time for uh, major league baseball teams, college baseball teams, but nothing like that existed for softball yet. And I wanted to be a part of that. And I said, well, if you're going to, if you're going to let me in on the softball side, I want to be in on the baseball side. And it was an immediate yes. And they, they really like just kind of involved me in the baseball side. And so then I started just hanging out with them and learning as much as I could driving up to Chicago as often as I could to just get my hands on all of this technology. Mm-hmm. And so then fast forward a couple of years, uh, Stoney gets hired by the Cubs to be their director of hitting. Right. And he needs to fill minor league coaching roles. And part of his job was to bring in all of this tech and people who actually know how to use it, communicate it, coach with it. And so suddenly I became very qualified for a job that became available in baseball. Uh-huh. And, you know, it kind of just lockstep fit in line. And since I already had this, you know, previous relationship with, uh, with him, I, I was able to at least know about the position that was available. Right. And then I got the interview and then I ended up getting the position. So, um, it was, it was actually a very like fortunate set of events that set that emotion. But yeah, my desire to work in baseball has always been present. Um, I've coached a few, you know, baseball players here and there that it's like a brother of a softball player and dad will let them come in for a couple lessons, but it's usually not very like consistent, but I've always wanted to work more on the baseball side just because it's the sport that I grew up loving. Right. You know, I'm a huge baseball fan. So it just seemed to fit and it just kind of, kind of worked out where I could get, you know, into baseball. Definitely. So I'm curious then, like as a very, very young player, were you dreaming of coaching in the majors or did you not even have that dream on your radar? And then, you know, because of the work you were putting into the sport and growing as a coach and the evolution of your career, this dream popped up in your head. Well, I didn't want to coach in baseball when I was a kid. I wanted to play major league baseball (laughs) when I was a kid. I wanted to play for the Dodgers. Um, So, you know, there's, there's always been that like, I think I played softball a little bit with that chip on my shoulder. Um, But when I started to coach, I had toyed with the idea of like, I wonder if I applied for like a college baseball coaching position, if someone would take me seriously or, you know, something like that. But I never really like, it was never like a dream that I've always had. It's like on a post-it on my mirror that I look at every single day. But when the opportunity presented itself, it was like, yeah, I would love to do this. And like, I would ready. absolutely love, and I was ready. And, and I think, you know, like when those opportunities come along, you know, if, if, if I'm qualified and I know that I can do it, or, you know, at least in my mind, I know I can do it. Um, yeah. I'm going to absolutely go for it because a it's, it, I'm not, I'm not naive to the impact that this has on bringing women into sports and bringing women into previously thought of as like male only sports. I'm not like, I understand the importance of that for sure. But like, for me, it's just literally like, I get to coach baseball. Like that right. seems awesome. You know, I get to, to be a small part 
of hopefully, you know, bringing another World Series to Chicago, that would be amazing, right? Like I get to do that. I'm in. Sign me up. Sign me up. Backtracking just a little bit because I don't want to wash over any part of your career. You've had, you know, a hugely impactful career playing and coaching, but you played five seasons in the National Pro Fast Pitch League while also coaching. And I'd love for you to describe that grind of coaching and playing because a lot of people don't understand that women a lot of times have to supplement their professional career with another job in order to even be a pro. So for you, what was that grind like of balancing a professional career and also a coaching career? Yeah, I think um, for me, I was pretty fortunate, like especially during my time at Valpo, I had coaches that really supported and kind of just let me go play for the summer. Mm. And so that was nice. Um, training for it is the hard part. So like going and playing in the summer, you know, like we all kind of have to have jobs with bosses or with program departments that understand that we're not going to be available for a lot of the summer. Send us out on a couple of recruiting trips here and there. Mm. Maybe we miss a couple games. Like it, it's all, it all works out pretty well, but the training for it is the hard part and trying to find time to train and trying to find time to like get live at bats um, it was a lot of fun when I was at Valpo because I remember having like the, the pitchers, I would be like, Hey, do you mind if I hop in and hit? And it's like, yeah, let's, it'll make the pitchers better. It'll help me get better. And it was kind of like a mutual, you know, relationship and just staying involved in the game, catching their bullpens. Cause I was a catcher, you know, just staying involved, hopping in a scrimmage. If we need an extra player, the training part is the hard part. I think just finding time to do it because the, especially during the season, because the college season is a grind, right? It is 80 hours a week. You know, you, you're getting off of the bus at 3 a.m. And then you have to get up and get to the office by 8 a.m. I mean, it is it is a grind. And, you know, so finding that time to train and recover and do whatever you need to do, um, that was that was the most difficult part for sure. Did you see your career as a pro impacting your players at all? Would they, you know, look at what you were doing and and I don't know, have questions for you about how to get there and, and see themselves essentially in you in a different way. You weren't just a coach. You were also a player showing them the way of how they could, you know, pursue the same career that you had. I think, I think it helped. I mean, I would like to think that it helped. I think more than anything, it helped me relate to them, yeah. you know, watching them struggle and go, you know, oh for 15 and wonder if they're ever going to get a hit again you know, I know what that feels like. I just did that, you know, like last summer, that was, that was part of my life. So, and, and I think what really helped me and something that I had never experienced before was I had a bad injury. I had a thumb injury that ended my season early. And I remember like completely understanding, like, dang, I understand what it feels like as a player to go through an injury. I'd right. never done that before. And so that really helped me kind of like be a little bit more empathetic as a coach as to like players who miss games. Like it sucks, right? It sucks to miss games and it sucks to watch your team go. And in my case, like I was sitting at home rooting for everybody to win a championship, but like watching them bear hug and dog pile on the field. Like I, I wasn't there, right. you know, like that was hard. That was hard to watch. So, you know, just kind of understanding um, that perspective. Cause I've always been the kind of player that's like, Oh, you you're injured, like get over it and get on the field kind of thing. Whereas you know, now I kind of understood like, oh, I get it. I get what you're going through. So I think it just helped me connect with players a little bit better. Yeah. Gave you an added layer of empathy, which, you know, in the long term, it all those lessons along the way prepare you for 
that present opportunity, which as we know is with the Cubs right now. Um, you've experienced though a lot of historic moments, I'm sure in your career, but one that I think stands out to many is catching Jenny Finch's perfect game in 2009. And everyone's attention, I think rightfully so, immediately goes to the pitcher who threw the perfect game. But as her catcher, how were you approaching each inning, each pitch, and what are some of your memories from that game? So when you're dealing with a pitcher like Finch, who's, yeah. I mean, I, she has to have thrown like 20, 20, 30 perfect games in her career, right? Yeah. Like she's just insanely good. Phenomenal. So when you're phenomenal, right? So you get through the first time through the order, you get through the first, you know, three innings and you're like, okay, we're cruising. Like, I understand what's going on, but like it's the first time through the order. You get through the second time through the order, you get about halfway through and you start to realize like we're in the fifth inning and like nobody's gotten on base yet. So you start to understand it. And then, you know, you start to like, we had a couple of really good plays in that game, you know, that kind of saved that, that perfect game. But it was like, when you're doing it, you're kind of just like, it does not matter what finger I put down right now. She's just gonna like, she's just on today. And um, so I think, when it really started to hit was like in the last inning and uh, we actually got, there was, there was a hitter that game, the last batter of the game, if I remember it correctly, uh, was Emily Friedman. And she actually ended up playing with me um, the following year in Chicago mm-hmm. and great, great, awesome softball player. But we, she got to a three and O count. And so you're sitting there and I'm like, Oh gosh, the perfect game's on the line. Like I got to make sure she throws a strike. And, but there's also a no hitter in play, right? So Friedman swings three and O and grounded out to the third baseman. I, I don't know if it was the last out or the second to last out, but I remember that she grounded out to the third baseman. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Like she bailed us out. Cause it was ball four. Right. And she swung at it. And uh, so I think it was, it was just, there's some moments there that were like really tense. And I remember thinking afterwards, like, dang, I should have got like the lineup card or I should have got like some sort of like, signature or something to like commemorate that moment. And I didn't, but I get to tell the story now. So it's pretty cool. But yeah, when you're dealing with a pitcher like that, I mean, you're just like, you're just literally hoping, like, I hope I don't screw this up right now. Like, I hope I don't drop the third strike and let the runner get to first base or something like that. So you're just trying to not screw up and just let her shine. Cause it's, it was incredible. I got to see her throw two. I didn't catch the second one. I was a DH that game, but I mean, just watching someone who's on like that, like the yeah. second one I think was more impressive because she was, uh, she had come off of a, like in a, she had to go fly somewhere. I think Mizuno flew her somewhere to like sign some autographs or take some pictures or whatever. And so mm-hmm. she flew in and it was like game time was starting in an hour. And right. so she like walks into the dugout. We're all like getting there ready to take batting practice and she's in jeans and she's like, Oh my God, I forgot my cleats. Like she had no cleats. Right. So I, I have like, tur- we're playing in on a baseball field and they like laid out a turf strip so that she could pitch on right. or the, the pitch, the pitchers could pitch on. And so I was like, I have my turfs if you want to wear my turfs. And she's like, well, that'll have to do right now. But she had her um, like traveling nanny with her that yeah. would take care of her kids. Cause her husband was playing at the time too. And so she wore my turfs to warm up in, wore my turfs for the first inning, put on a brand new pair of cleats in the second inning. And she ended up throwing a perfect game. Like just showed up, like just was the greatest pitcher in the world just because she showed up that day. That's how All good right. she was. Can we just acknowledge the greatness that is Jenny Finch? Yeah. She shows up without her shoes, her nanny in tow, coming from another work obligation, steps on the field, 
drops a perfect game. Yeah, it was incredible. It was that incredible. is phenomenal. Shout out to women. We never fail to impress. <laughs> um, again, transitioning, your coaching career evolved in 2010 when you founded your Indiana-based training company, Fold and Fast Pitch. And, you know, everyone goes through transitions in their career. And sometimes it's a struggle to know when it's the right time for a transition. For other people, it's very clear in their minds, this is what is right right now. So for you, how did you know it was the right time to leave collegiate coaching? And what were some of the challenges of starting your own business? Well, I left college coaching uh, with a little bit of a sour taste in my mouth. Um, There was a pretty unfortunate like incident that happened um, with my previous boss. That's like, it's not worth talking about. I just, we just didn't get along. And then it ended up being this bigger thing later on after I had quit. So I just didn't like college coaching. Um, I didn't like, I, I, it just, it just wasn't for me. I didn't like, I like sleeping in my own bed at night. I'm going to be honest with you at, at that point same. in my life. I, so, you know, like being on the road all the time, recruiting and then being on the road all the time, like playing. Um, I think it's, it's kind of funny because now I'm coaching in baseball where I'm going to like the travel is going to increase right, exponentially. Um, but it, I'm, I'm ready for that now at this point in my life. And so I think, you know, at that time I had gone to, from California to college, to playing pro softball, back to college, back to playing pro softball, back to now to Indiana. And I had just moved and gone for, you know, through so many like different apartments and different dorm rooms. I think at one point I'd lived in like 10 different houses in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm like done with it. And so I, uh, I was like, I need to just like settle down and like chill and just be able to go to work every day and come home every day. And I loved coaching. So I just started giving lessons and it was, you know, it was interesting because I quit college softball. I started working at, I had got a job at Best Buy, a part-time job at Best Buy to kind of supplement my income. I was slinging cell phones at Best Buy, wearing the blue <laughs> polo, you know, and, uh, and giving lessons on the side. And then one night a week turned into two nights a week and then two nights a week turned into three nights a week. And then eventually I was just like, I don't need to work at Best Buy anymore, you know, uh-huh. for 10 50 an hour. And so I just started giving lessons full time and that just took off. And I've just, you know, started, uh, we, we hired some instructors last year that have done a phenomenal job. I love them so much. And, uh, so they, they've kind of like shouldered the workload now because I'm kind of in and out at this point. And so, um, it's grown really well and, and it's expanded. We've got like an online training platform now and it's, it's been awesome. So, um, I, I get to coach people, which is what I want to do. I want to be in a batting cage and coach people, but I also get to like, you know, have this a relationship with people for years and years and sleep in my own bed at night. So I'm not mad about it. Definitely. I wonder then what your advice is for young individuals, you know, just starting out, whether it's opening their own business or something completely unrelated to opening your own business. But that message I'm sure is still the same of it takes commitment. And in the beginning, your commitment was juggling Best Buy and your new business and I'm sure it wasn't easy, but you stayed committed. So what's your advice for young people when starting anything new and the commitment it takes to really see it through to a place that your company is now? 
I think, I think what's most important is to like lay out goals first. Um, you know, like if your goal is to work in baseball, for example, right. You don't just get to walk into the door of a baseball team and say, I'd like to work for you. Right. (laughs) You have to be able to provide something that that baseball program or baseball team or department or whatever it is, you have to be able to provide something that they need that you can provide. And so I always ask people this, like, you don't get to just like get your foot in the door just because you, you express interest, everybody express interest. What are you going to do? And so like, for me, my, my goal at the beginning, when I quit college softball is I'm like, okay, first goal, I have to make money. I have to live. Right. So I needed to go get a part-time job. I don't care. I don't care that I was just a professional softball player and an offensive MVP. And now I'm wearing a blue polo for 10 50 an hour. I don't care like that. There's no pride factor in there. I you have to take money. your ego out of it. Yeah, absolutely. So it was, I got to make money first. And then I've, I have a service that I can provide, but I have to work to build it. Mm-hmm. And so if that means that I got to go work for eight hours and then I got to go work for another eight hours on top of that to try to build my business, then that's what I have to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you're super, super passionate about it and you're willing to put in the work and in a lot of cases, it's on top of other work to build your, you know, your, your rapport to build your, or to build your clientele or to learn as much as you can, whatever it is, you have to be able to like be willing to do that and work more than the average person. And I think that becomes lost on it. I think a lot of people, especially in the sports industry, they think they work really hard because they work in sports all day, but it's like, what are you doing to separate yourself from the other 55,000 people that are doing the exact same thing thing as you, what are you doing to separate yourself? And so I think, you know, what you have to be able to provide value before you want to, you know, go get in that business. And if that means you got to be an intern for free to get yourself some knowledge, then that's what you have to do. Yeah. The sports industry, it's, it's interesting. And from my perspective, we, we see a lot of like this microwave effect. People want instant gratification in this industry. And, you know, we see certain cases from both players, coaches, reporters, whoever, who immediately skyrocket to the top, but they, that's the exception. The rule is that grind, that commitment, that dedication to putting in the work day in and day out to be better than your competition. You mentioned this connection earlier in our conversation with Justin Stone that you made in 2017, and it ended up playing a role in your hire with the Cubs. Can you explain the importance of building a network and yeah, in more detail, how it impacted your career? Sure. It goes back to that whole ego thing, right? Um, I think as coaches, we think sometimes we're the center of an athlete's universe. Uh And we think that we're kind of the center of our own universe as an athlete or an ex-athlete, you know, because for a long time we had to be. And when you, when you start to, to get into coaching, I, if your ego gets into play, it's, you're literally going to be limited from day one. You will never learn a new thing. You'll just be a prisoner to what you know, and you'll think you're awesome and you'll never go out and try to get any better. And, you know, so I think, once, and I, and I think I, I, I was a little hard headed at first because I was a very successful player. I was very good at softball. I was very good. And I wanted to show everybody like, look, I was really good. So I'm going to show you exactly what I did and that's going to work for you. And that's just not how it works. Right. Mm-hmm. We all have different paths. 
especially like when it comes to things like hitting and throwing and playing a sport, like we're built differently. We move differently. We don't weigh the same. Like there's so many different variables. And I think once I started to, to understand that and I started to go down these, these little rabbit holes on Twitter and on, you know, like the internet and YouTube and all this stuff, I, I, I started to realize like, damn, like there is so much out there that I just don't know. Mm-hmm. And once I kind of just like dropped the whole, I was a really good player. Cause honestly, to be honest, nobody cares. Like if I can't communicate yeah. with you and build a relationship with you, they will not come back just because I used to be a good player. Right. right? I have to, again, I have to be able to provide some value to the, to the kids and, and parents that I'm coaching. And so once I started to kind of just put that away and just be like, okay, I want to learn everything there is to know. And then I started to kind of figure out, okay, now I got to identify who are the smarter people than me. And there's a lot of them and kind of align myself with them and talk to them and ask questions, you know, like building networks is really, really easy. Just ask questions. You know, people love to talk about what they do. I think we're always afraid to like ask people for advice. It's like, they literally do it for a living. They want to talk about talk it. About like, it right? I, I want to, like, I love when people ask me hitting questions because I love hitting. I want to talk about it all the time. So, right. um, you know, ask people, just ask them like, Hey, what are you doing here? Is there something I can learn? Is there a way that I can set up a phone call with you? People do that to me all the time. I do that to other people all the time. So I think that's just, it just takes that like willingness to just drop your ego and say, tell me what you know, and please like, don't be afraid to be proven wrong in that moment. And if you're okay with that, then that's how you build a network. Amazing. Amazing. Great advice. You were announced as a new hire by the Cubs in November of 2019. And quickly the world was flipped upside down. 2020 was a year of unprecedented challenges and the pandemic had a very unique impact on minor league baseball. So can you describe how that first year went and how you addressed the challenges that, yeah, you all saw in minor league baseball? I I don't think anyone could have ever prepared us for what was going on. Um, You know, you get hired and it's like, you're riding this all time high of like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, like you get hired. This is the job of a lifetime. This is awesome. And I got to go to work and I got, you know, we had two instructional camps and then we had three days of spring training, two or three days, and then boom, it was shut down. So I got to do my actual on-field job in Arizona, in the pinstripes for about six weeks. And then everything gets shut down and you're like, okay, this will be temporary. Right. And then it's just, nope, it's this. And then it's this, and then it's this. And then boom, now minor league season is canceled. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, oh my gosh, like, And immediately my first thought was, I really feel for these guys, like for the players, you know, kind of like what we were talking about before. Like, it's almost like every single minor leaguer had an injury this year. They had limited time Um, for a lot of them. Like we had a few instructional leagues that went on, but like for the most part, a lot of them haven't gotten a chance to play unless they've set something up or had, you know, a very fortunate, like, for some of our international players to play in some leagues down there and then to play, you know, get some live at bats here and there. It's like, I just really felt, felt for the guys, you know, like I knew I was going to be fine just because, you know, I I didn't have like my, my, there's no timeline on my coaching career, but there's a timeline on somebody's playing career. And so immediately it was just like very, very sad for the guys. And it's like, gosh, you lose an entire year of development in a sport where it takes years to develop. 
you know, that's, that's a rough one for a lot of these guys. So, um, you know, just trying to be adaptable, you know, I, buying myself out of my lease of my apartment in Arizona, moving back to Indiana so that I could work, um, you know, little by little, the world started to open up a little bit and I got to go back to work and give lessons and stuff. So that was a blessing for sure, you know, to have a craft that you can kind of like take with you anywhere, you know, I don't, I'm not confined to a certain area. So, um, coming back here was, was a blessing for sure, but just navigating that and trying to, to work remotely. I think that was a big challenge too, is like, it is so much easier to work with players in person than it is to work with them through zoom or through FaceTime or whatever it is. And, you know, I learning how to transition. I think the Cubs did a great job of setting up this infrastructure where we can communicate with players and, and do as best as we can, but there's no substitute to being on the field. And I think we all miss it. So you've still been able to establish those connections then with players, despite essentially, like you said, losing an entire year. Yeah. I mean, we have a, we have a really, really good uh, communication system that we can, that we use uh, with the Cubs and we have a great group of hitting and pitching coaches that have been able to communicate remotely. So um, we can send out training plans. We can send out drills we can send out everything that we need to do very quickly, very efficiently. And, you know, just checking in with them too goes a long way and just saying like, Hey, how you doing? You know, just right. Cause I mean, it takes a toll on everybody. Oh, absolutely. And again, like we mentioned, minor league players, they're the, the, the struggle financially of pursuing a minor league career, which obviously you hope evolves into more, is, is a strain. And so to have an entire year taken away that I'm sure cut a lot of players careers short, they were forced to make that decision. Do I stick this out or do I pursue another career earlier than I thought I I previously had to? Yeah, it's, it's, it had to have put a strain on a lot of people. And then there was a lot of contraction, you know, like there's a lot of minor league shuffling that went or went around and a lot of minor league teams got dropped. And right. so you have a lot less jobs now too, to go around. And I think, you know, baseball b- became more competitive, mm-hmm. but it left a lot of players in a really difficult spot. You know, do I do this for another year? Do I not do this for another year? I know what that feels like as a pro softball player too, because we didn't make any money either. Right. So I know what that feels like to be like, do I want to do this again? Put my whole life on hold to go play for $8,000, you know, like, is that worth it to me? Or should I, should I pursue other things that aren't going to require me to just like stop my life, go here for three or four months, you know, for the, for the softball season. I know what that's like. And it, and it's a rough decision because especially like, you know, I, I stopped playing, I retired when I was 25, 26 and I was still in my prime, you know, and to have to make that decision is rough just because financially you just can't afford to do it anymore. I understand that completely. Following that up, I read an interesting line about your experience playing baseball. And it was that when you switched to softball, like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, you were grateful that the focus shifted to your play and not your gender. And you went on to say that this attention was very similar to what you experienced when you were hired by the Cubs. So as a woman whose main focus is just being the best at your job, being the best coach you can be, how do you approach gender when it's very clearly an issue in the hiring practices in men's sports leagues? I think the best thing 
that I can do. And I think this is something that, uh, I, I wish, I wish a lot, of, a lot more women would hear. Like, I mm-hmm. wish this, this would get out. It's like, number one, like you have to be good at what you do, right? Like I, I, that women aren't getting hired for the sake of checking a diversity box, mm-hmm. right? You have to be actually capable and good at what you do. So let's start there, right? So the best way that I can represent all the women that want to get into baseball is to go out and just absolutely crush it and be good at my job. That's number one. That's, that's the best way to do it. But the second thing is like, you have to be able to have thick skin to work in this position. Um, and like, I mean, I grew up, I'm one of six, I've got four brothers. Like it's, it's not, you know, I've heard it all right. I've heard it all before I got into this business, um, right. you know, good and bad. So like, it's, it's not, you know, something that I, I think is going to like punch me in the face on a daily basis. Um, and I do think that we have really great leadership specifically for the Cubs, like that I haven't felt unwelcome or, you know, felt the presence of like, oh, like we have to completely pivot our conversation because now there's a woman in the room. There's been small instances here and there where it's kind of funny, but, um, yeah, I think it's, it's been really great and it's been really positive for the most part, but, um, you know, as far as like being taken seriously for your gender, like go out and crush it. You know, the, the more you normalize working your butt off and being good at your job, then other people will normalize it for you. You know, I think when we make it every time we walk into a room, it's a fist fight of I'm a woman and I need to be accepted. Then that just makes everybody uncomfortable versus like, Hey, I'm coming in. I need to do a good job. I need to take care of what I can take care of first. And then you'll accept me because of that. I think, I think that's, at least for me, that's how I've chosen to approach it. And mm-hmm. I think it's working out pretty well. Do you see yourself as a pioneer? Do you walk into these places and spaces and see yourself as daily contributing to a change that we need to see? Yes. Um, I think, you know, like I'm, I'm very aware of that, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very aware that, every time that I do an interview like this or a podcast or a phone call or whatever, I'm very aware that like someone somewhere who wants to get into this business is going to see it or they're going to listen to it and they're going to, they're going to really listen to what I have to say. So I'm very, very aware of that. And that does not get lost on me for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that like, like I said before, the best way that I can, you know, give justification for my hiring and for bringing females into this business is to go out there and just do a good job. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the best way, right? I can, I can now justify my hire, right? Because there's a lot of people that are like, I've, I've heard it. I know what, I know what everybody out there is saying. Like, please tell me what you know about hitting a 95 mile per hour fastball. Okay. Like I get it. That's (laughs) fine. I can handle all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I think if I just go out there, I do a good job. I'm, you know, a good leader to the players, the players and I communicate well with each other. And I, you know, our, our minor league system gets better. I think that's the best justification for bringing more women into this business. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I also just have to say, I love that a lot of trolls on Twitter, on social media who are coming at you about, have you ever hit a 95 mile per hour fastball? It's like, how many of you have? You know, like how many of you have done that? So why are you coming at me with this energy? Um, Wrapping up because I can't keep you all day, although I'd love to. 
during your hiring practice, you, you were very direct with the Cubs about not wanting to be a hire just so that they can check a box. And like you just mentioned, you're proving that every day with, with your work, but was that a difficult question to ask? Were you worried about the response you were going to get in return? No, um, it was important to me. So I think, you know, when you have those opportunities to sit in front of the people that I was very fortunate to sit in front of mm-hmm. you, you're, I would be silly not to ask that question. I think, um, right. you know, it's, I'm never going to get that opportunity again to ask that question. And I also don't want to go into a position where I'm unsure, you know, I want to make sure everything's laid out for me because at the end of the day, like, I think people, you know, think that, Oh, I, I you, you get this job and it's like, Oh, it's a job of lifetime. You'd be stupid not to take it. But there's, there's other things to consider, right? Right. Like moving, uh, pay, obviously you have to make sure that you can make a living doing what you're doing. So there's, there's things that you have to consider and my, you know, my emotional and, and my mental health and that kind of stuff, making sure I'm getting into a work environment where I'm going to be treated fairly and accepted where I don't have to go into work every day. Like we talked about, and it's a dog fight to be accepted and to be taken seriously. I wanted to really make sure, cause I, I wasn't going to do that. That wasn't right. going to be something that I was interested in, whether I got to wear you know, the Royal blue and red or not, it, it didn't matter. I wanted to make sure that this was something that was still good, a good opportunity for me, because yeah. if it's not a good opportunity for me, then I'm going to be in and out in one year. And then now, like we talked about before, there's no representation, right? I, so this was something that I wanted to make sure that I could do and be taken seriously and be comfortable with, because I want to do, I want to do this for a long time. You know what? I love that piece of advice because we've all, I think when, when you busted your butt, been presented opportunities that to some people are dream opportunities, but it's not a dream opportunity unless it's right. And in order to figure out if it's right, you have to ask the right questions. You have to ask the tough questions. So I love that you just shared that because I think that's such an important lesson for our young listeners. We all know that there's so much that goes into being successful, whether it's as a coach, as a player, as a journalist, whatever. So I wonder for you, what lesson has taken you the longest to learn, but had the most significant impact on your career trajectory? Ooh, that's a good question. Most difficult to learn. Um, I think the most difficult to learn and the best thing I've ever done is just accepting that I don't know everything <laughs> and also not being afraid to tell somebody when I don't know something. Uh-huh. You know, um, I remember filling out a questionnaire for this position uh, when I was, you know, being interviewed or like at least going through the interview process. And part of it was a questionnaire. And it was like, here was all these questions. And there was like two or three questions on there where I was like, I have no idea what the hell that means. I have no idea what the hell that is. And it's like, okay, so I could try to BS my way through it, or I could just admit and be like, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. I'd love to learn. I'd love to find out. Um, Being okay with the phrase, I don't know, goes a long way. Um, And just like the phrase, I'm sorry, goes a long way. Um, You know, admitting when you're wrong or admitting when you don't know something like for me, that's been a huge part of my growth, not only as a coach and professionally, but personally as well. You know, I think it just, it, it just opens the lines of, of vulnerability between me and any other person, whether it's somebody that I'm coaching, somebody that I'm in a relationship with, with my family, no matter what it is, I think, uh, you know, not be, or being okay with not knowing everything or being okay with not 
doing everything right, I think is, is, has been a huge part of my, my development as a person. I wish I had a buzzer right here. So every time you dropped a gem, I could just like nail it. So people knew to pay attention because you're hitting us with all the good stuff. Um, 2021, we have a lot to be hopeful for. The vaccine is being rolled out. And although there are still many challenges that, that face us, I'm hopeful and I think a lot of people are hopeful that a more standard way of living and operating is is coming soon. So for you, how excited are you to get 2021, this 2021 season underway and return to a more standard way of coaching? I mean, I'm, I just want to be able to like go through the grind of a season. You know, I got some, some pretty like, good opportunities in instructional league, uh, in the past January and February. And then, you know, with my limited, you know, time in Arizona at the, at the complex, but I'd, I'd really like to know what this whole, you know, grind of a baseball season is all about. You know, I, I played softball, but our seasons were like 55 games, you know, <laughs> so going through a season of, you know, a, a, you know, a, a grind, an eight month season, I'm really looking forward to that. I wish that I would like you know, let's get in and, and I want to dive in. So that's the part I'm looking forward to the most, um, you know, just understanding what that's like and getting some experience under my belt for sure. She's not looking forward to being away from her bed, but she is looking forward to the grind. That well, I'll, be, I'll be in rookie league in Arizona. So I'll sleep in the same bed just about every night. Okay. So we're, we'll there be we all right. It, yeah, it we'll won't be, be right. her bed in Indiana, but it'll be her, her <laughs> bed. She's going home to yeah. Rachel. Lastly, I end every episode with this question. What do you hope the future looks like for women in sports and more specifically women in baseball? Um, I think continued opportunities is going to be paramount for women in sports. I think we all are very accepting of the fact that women play sports. You know, we're not in like the 1930s and 40s where like if you played a sport, you were seen as some like ostracized member of society. Um, I think we're all very, very accepting of females in sports, which is awesome. Um, I just hope that the, the, you know, our daughters always get the same opportunities as our sons, um, you know, from a pathway to being a millionaire, that would be awesome. I would love that. Um, or from like, Hey, the quality of your youth coaching is the same, whether you play baseball or you play softball or whether you play men's basketball or women's basketball, you know, it's not like the men get all the good opportunities and the good training opportunities. And then the women just kind of get what's left over here. And I think that is definitely starting to change, but I think it, it's going to start at a youth level. You know, uh, obviously you see it from the top down and that's going to help youth coaches try to do more things like the, the higher levels. Um, so I think this is definitely helping, but I would love to see, a world where our sons and daughters get the same opportunities and the same pathways to success. I think, you know, that's just something that we haven't had yet. And it's, it's the gap is closing, but it's still a very large gap. So I would love to see that, you know, definitely get to a, to an equal playing field where people are valuing and treasuring their daughters and their sports opportunities as much as they're treasuring their son's opportunities. Well, man, Rachel, I'm going to hit you up 20 years from now, and hopefully that gap is minuscule and we could have a coffee, a beer, and smile about how far we've come. But Rachel, Rachel, thank you so much for the time that you've given CBEA and Equal Play. It was a joy 
to dive into this conversation with you and, and get some of your feedback and insight. And like I said, the gems, they were great. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. 